When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, May 2nd. On today's show, I want to break down everything that ensued in Madrid. I thought it was a pretty clean day of results. Now, of course, we did have a couple of top seeds upset, further chaos ensuing in that Daniil Medvedev quarter of the men's singles draw as both of the top seeds in the section, Medvedev and, of course, eighth-seeded Taylor Fritz knocked out of the event on Tuesday. Now, I'm not sure how unanticipated those results were from a 30,000-foot view. If I told you before the event that both Medvedev and Fritz were going to get knocked out in the round of 16, I think many tennis fans would have said, yeah, that sounds about right, given their track record on this surface. That said, certainly the Taylor Fritz result was surprising. Now, so much credit needs to go to Jung Ji Jen. He's earned third set tiebreak victories over Shapovalov, over Cam Nori, now over Taylor Fritz at this event as well. He becomes the first Chinese man to reach the quarterfinals of a 1,000 level event. He was spectacular. Just so steady, I should say, down the home stretch of his match against Fritz. Now, Fritz had match points. Want to talk about those match points. Want to talk about what went wrong for Fritz, as not only did he have match points in the breaker, he was up a set to break uh, in that second set on Jung Ji Jen. We'll break all of that down, what happened in that match on today's show. I also want to have the discussion after this result. Are you immediately selling all of your Clayler Fritz stock? I know there was some discourse on tennis Twitter on Monday following Fritz's win over Christian Garin. Many people were looking maybe Taylor Fritz as a dark horse long shot at the French Open. Now, I never bought that position. I imagine many of you mini break listeners didn't either. Perhaps today's result makes you feel more confident about that assertion, uh, but I don't know why I'm feeling the need to use these $25 words for $1 sentences here in the introduction. The point is, we'll talk Jung Ji Jen over Fritz. We'll talk Aslan Karatsev, who, dare I say, a vintage Karatsev performance today over Daniil Medvedev. And does that change our perspective on of Medvedev on this surface? We can entertain those thoughts as well. Of course, I want to run you through every other round of 16 matches. The men's singles draw was really the feature event on the day in Madrid yet all eight round of 16 matches unfolding continued success for Carlos Alcaraz beatdown of Alex Zverev. How about Karen Hatchinov? You can pretty definitively make the case that he has been a top 10 player this season. I know that's something I have harped on on this show in particular. 
I think, for much of the past two months. But certainly his victory over Andre Rublev today, he looked the part of top 10 player. And we can talk about that. We can talk about Chorich, Tsitsipas, everything else that happened in the men's singles draw. Of course, he had two women's quarterfinals on the day, both three set matches. Now, ultimately, we got the anticipated semifinal of Arena Sabalenka and Maria Sakkari. And credit to Sakkari, there are some statistics of her track record of continued success success that need to be shared here on today's show. I also thought she did a really good job dealing with the physicality and just answering every question asked by her of Arena Camilla Begu today. Talk about that match. Talk about the funkiness that was Meyer Sharif versus Arena Sabalenka. Sabalenka threw in three sets. <laughs> Dare I say vintage Arena Sabalenka performance. Now she won it, and maybe some of you would argue a match like this, 2000. 19, maybe even 2021, early stages of 2022, Sabalenka lose this match. I would disagree. I think this is a vintage Sabalenka performance, shakiness, though ultimately through the finish line. Break down everything that happened on the singles court today in Madrid. That's the agenda here for this show. Of course, the reason we're able to do all of that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. And in case you tennis fans are wondering what's happening elsewhere, in the tennis world. 2023 NCAA Division I tournament begins this weekend. We are so excited to be providing so much of the coverage that you will be able to follow of the action over on NCAA.com. I believe we have 20 of the 32 regions locked in to be a part of our Crack Rackets broadcast on NCAA.com. Again, if you're looking for the best of the best in the college tennis world, you're going to see all of them compete throughout the course of this NCAA tournament. We will have coverage starting Friday for all of you. That will continue through Sunday this weekend, and it'll continue throughout the month of May. We'll have coverage, of course, here on our podcast, breaking down all of the results. We'll be previewing everything as well. Preview shows available live on YouTube Tuesday, Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time. You can hear them as podcasts the next day over on our Great Shot podcast feed once we hit the Sweet 16. It's our favorite bit. We do. We'll have interviews with all of the remaining head coaches prior to the start of that Super Regional weekend. All of those will be available on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. So the month of May is always busy here at Cracked Rackets. We have Madrid, Rome, then ultimately French Open coverage for you all planned here on this mini break podcast feed. NCAA tournament coverage over on the Great Shot podcast. Cracked Interviews will be an assortment of things. So yeah, it's going to be a busy month. Buckle your seatbelts. Buy some groceries because, again, you're not going to have time to leave the house. You're going to be locked into the action across levels in the tennis world here in the month of May. In my opinion, pound for pound, the best month on the tennis calendar. With all of that said, that's a look ahead. Of course, a shout out, as always, to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their support of this podcast for all the latest equipment at all of the best prices. Just go to tennis-point.com today. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you there. You'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-point, symbol not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right, let's start with the men's singles action in Madrid because, again, you had all eight round of 16 battles unfold on Tuesday. Have to start with the Medvedev quarter. And not to give a shout out to myself, but 
you know, again, to stick with the longtime theme here on the Mini Break Podcast feed, a shout out to myself. Every so, you, I mean, you get, uh, you're lucky in this game if you're, you know, Ty Cobb. I, I want to say shout out to the Detroit Tigers for what he was one of the highest batting averages of all time in baseball. This is about the extent of a baseball metaphor I can go to. But look, if you're batting 300 on your tweets, if you're batting 350, you're hitting it out of the park. But if you can bat 300 on your predictions, it's much like baseball. You feel pretty good. And looking at the draw at the start of the event, the seeds in that Daniil Medvedev quarter of the draw, you had certainly the top two guys in Medvedev and Fritz who had played well, each making multiple quarterfinals at events on clay so far this year, but neither guy with a significant track record of clay court success. You have other seeds like Denis Shapovalov, Cam Nori, Alex Diemenauer, who have had such ups and downs throughout the course of this 2023 season. And I know Kasmenovic made a final in Estoril on the clay and played a really fun match against Kasper Ruud in that final earlier this year. But are you going to bet the house on Miamir Kasmenovic making a quarterfinal or semifinal at a 1,000-level event? I don't think you are. And so, you know, looking up and down this section, you knew things could get a little bit funky, or certainly I felt as though things might get funky. And lo and behold, the quarterfinal of the Daniil Medvedev section, two guys making their first career 1,000-level quarterfinals in qualifier, Aslan Karatsevs and China's Zhengji Jian. Now, let's start with the Zhengji Jian side of things, because put his, I mean, I've made this case before. I think we should have more fun with the Tennis Hall of Fame than we do. And, you know, I don't want to impugn the prestige of the Tennis Hall of Fame because I know it is a a very prestigious event. I know how much time and care and resources go into ensuring the continued prestige of everything surrounding the Tennis Hall of Fame. But we should have some fun in this era now that we can incorporate modern things into the Hall of Fame, things we should all appreciate. I have said before, we should have a gift wing in the Tennis Hall of Fame, and I think specific shots belong in the Hall of Fame, things we'll always remember, right? Like, I think there should be a gif of the Federer finger wag after he beats Djokovic to end his undefeated start to the 2011 season. That's like a mo- that's a moment I will never forget. I imagine many won't forget it either. You know, to get more specific, do I think John Isner belongs in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely not. Do I think John Isner serve as a gif? Maybe you could make the argument it's one of like the definitive serves of a of an era of the ATP Tour. I've listened to that conversation. Obviously, if you want to put the Federer forehand, the running Nadal lefty forehand pass, the Djokovic sliding backhand, which he was the first to do. Obviously, there's a lot of tweeners and individual nominees you feel can go into the mix. There's a plethora of women's selections, obviously, that can go into this as well. I don't know if this run belongs in the Hall of Fame from Jung Ji Jen this week, all that is to say, but... For him to beat Rodionov in round number one and then 7-6 in the third over Shapovalov, 7-6 in the third over Nori, now 7-6 in the third over Fritz. By the way, in each of his matches in these last three rounds, Shapovalov, Nori, Fritz, he's played six total tiebreakers between nine total sets. He's 5-1 and one in those six tiebreakers. I'm not saying that this 26-year-old's run belongs in the Hall of Fame. But if he ends up winning the event... Like one of the Cinderella stories we will see 
in all, in any season uh, at a, at a 1000 level event like this. And, you know, again, for the 26 year old to be the first ATP player from China to first reach the round of 16 at a 1000 level event. Now first to reach the quarterfinals at a 1000 level event. He was the first to become a top 100 player in the ATP rankings from China. What a year it's been for Jung Ji Jen. And with this result, the 26 year old I mean, I don't want to say life-changing because he was inside the top 100 and he was going to have the opportunity to make main draw money playing first rounds of slams and, you know, again, $60,000 paycheck. You get four of them throughout the year. I know he travels a lot given his profession, but that's probably going to make a sufficient living for Jung Jijin. That said, he goes from, you know, again, hovering around the top 100. It's now up to number 66 in the live rankings. And this is a significant cache of points that just guarantees main draws at Wimbledon, guarantees main draw of the U.S. Open. And again, for Jung Ji Jen, first top 10 victory of his career. He looked the part in all three of these matches he's played. Just first of all, and I've had the chance to see Jung Ji Jen play in person. I happened to see him in Phoenix where he beat Rinki Hijikata, then got knocked out straight sets by Sasha Bublik. Guy is jacked. Like, that is a big man by tennis standards. He has the strength. He has the frame. He just has the physicality required in 2020's ATP tennis to hold his ground, to play three consecutive 7-6 in the third decided matches, three matches that go over the two-hour mark, three matches where he had a significant amount of success on serve. I mean, against Shapovalov, he was broken once, won over 75% of his service points, not first serve points, 75% of his service points, period. Same deal against Cam Norrie, where he's knocking out double-digit aces on this surface. And, you know, again, you look in this match against Taylor Fritz, a 3-6, 7-6, 7-6 victory. He was down a set and a break in this match. And let's be perfectly clear. The 4-3 service game Fritz played to get broken, it was a disaster. And, you know, for Fritz to... It was a rare moment. Fritz blinked. I I don't know how else to describe it for Fritz. He, you know, lost five consecutive points, I believe, on serve from, I believe he was 6-3, 4-3, 40-love up, and loses five consecutive points on serve, throws in three just ugly forehand errors, and, you know, similarly, Fritz is up 6-4 in the third set breaker, excuse me, First one fought up by Jung Ji Jen is just a very good first serve. Not much Fritz could do on that point. I thought Jung Ji Jen played well. Second match point, Fritz tries to force an inside-out forehand. I don't know why he'd feel the need to do that. I understand trying to keep the ball in front of you on clay, but, man, Taylor Fritz's backhand is exceptional. And I don't understand why Fritz didn't try to, you know, again, he had his most success when attacking the down the lines, when forcing Jung Ji Jen, who holds his ground really well, but, you know, isn't the most fluid in and out of corners. Fritz didn't test him down the line. He makes an error long, just again, played kind of hesitant in that point. Or excuse me, didn't make an error long. He leaves his inside out forehand short. Jung Ji Jen hits a little short backhand drop shot. Fritz misses a little backhand flick in the net. Now it's six all. Fritz has another shot for a match point at 8-7 on his serve. He uh, ultimately fumbles that match point with an error. You know, from there, again, Jung Ji Jen just solid down the home stretch. A forehand shank from Fritz ultimately uh, giving him the win on match point. Uh, 
I think that was just, and I know that was that was just, I suppose, a, a poor man's play-by-play of what happened down the home stretch in that match. I apologize. That wasn't the most cohesive and fluid description of the match points, but that's a synopsis of all of the big things that happened in crunch time. I think those errors are indicative of a Taylor Fritz who's still searching to find what works best for him on this surface. I think the heaviness of his ball, we talked about this with DK yesterday, the weight of his shot, there's certainly a, you know the, the angles he's able to create. He can open up such big lanes to attack with his slice serve out wide on the deuce, his kick serve out wide on the ad. It's just the plus one game is so easy for him on this surface. And again, if he gets his hands on the ball, just the depth he's able to generate, it makes opponents uncomfortable, uh, the majority of opponents at least, on this surface. And yet again, you can tell he's still hesitant moving particularly out of his corners. He's definitely a guy who slides out of his shots, does not slide into them. I still think he's looking for the clear cut other than the serve, the big plus one ball, which he had a ton of success with throughout the course of this week. Again, I'm not selling my stock on Taylor Fritz coming out of this match. I do just think this is, again, him indicative of a Taylor Fritz who's still searching for that top form. But let's be abundantly clear. Taylor Fritz had match points in this one. He was up a set 4-3-40 love before watching this match go astray. And that is a continued credit to Jung Ji Jen. 3-7-6 in the third victories in the row, all over top 25 players, two of them over top 15 players. It's well-deserved of your first spot inside the top 70. Again, the highest-ranked Chinese man in ATP Tour history. Only 26 years old. You look for what he has to defend throughout the rest of this season. It's all at the challenger level. And while he does have a bunch of runs to challenger titles and challenger finals to defend throughout the course of the summer, you know, the uh, Cordinos challenger, the Triest challenger, the Ludenscheid challenger, they all get replaced now by the City Open, Atlanta, Hala, or anywhere he wants to play, Queens Club, any of these locations he wants to play throughout the course of the grass court season because he's a top uh, top 70 guy now. He's going to get into all of those main draws. And, you know, again, didn't play the French Open main draw last year, gets the opportunity to play that this season. Didn't make Wimbledon main draw last year. He's going to get into the Wimbledon main draw this season. Had to qualify into the U.S. Open last season. I can guarantee. I know he's got a... uh, Oh, here's the thing. How many challenger finals? One, two, three, four challenger finals to defend between now and the U.S. Open. It's a lot of points, but he wins one French Open match or, God forbid, two uh, French Open matches or a match at the French Open and a match at Wimbledon. He's just about covered. So, yeah, I'm going to say it. He's guaranteed to get into all three main draws of the slams for the rest of the season. And, again, now you're in the ballgame for the 26-year-old. So impressed by what he's done this week. Again, I'm not selling my clay stock on Taylor Fritz. I was I never bought it to the point of I think he's going to win the French Open, but I think he's going to be a good player on this surface. And I don't think he will be so deficient on this surface that it will prevent him from being a top 10 player because I certainly think he's proven to be a top 10 guy on the hard courts. I mean, uh, he came to everyone's attention making the junior Wimbledon semifinals back in, what, 2014, I want to say, because that was the year Ruben beat Kozlov in the final. 
was that 14 or 13? I'm pretty sure that was 14 because Ruben goes on to win the NC, uh, the Kalamazoo that year. And then, yeah, 2015, he makes the NCAA fi- uh, singles final, losing to Ryan Shane because Virginia wins at Baylor. And that was 2015 because 2014, USC wins, and that was in Georgia. This is how I this is how I keep perspective on everything. What was the NCAA tournament that happened that year? Anyways, heck of a run from Jung Ji Jen. Uh, yeah, I, I just I, I'm not selling stock on Fritz. I think he looked really good this week. Obviously, he's going to beat himself up having match points, not getting through the finish line, playing a little bit tentative. But that tentativeness, I think, is indicative of a guy who's still figuring things out, but is finding solutions on the clay. As for the Karatsev Medvedev side of this quarter, look, you just can't give Aslan Karatsev time when he's locked in like this. And, you know, again, I've seen Aslan Karatsev hit over 100 unforced errors in the course of a three out of five set match at a slam. I think that was what U.S. Open. I think he did multiple times at the U.S. Open. It was either last year or two years ago. Still managed to win one of the matches where he had 100 plus unforced errors. But look, Karatsev has legitimate weaponry. Like, that's always been the case. A guy who's made a slam semifinal, who's been ranked as high as number 14 in the world, we know that about Aslan Karatsev. And credit to the soon-to-be 30-year-old who comes through qualifying, beats a guy in Jan Leonard Struve who, in qualifying who's still alive in this event. Jan Leonard Struve, and again, Aslan Karatsev played in qualifying. Struve, a 4-2 and two victory over, uh, excuse me, Karatsev, a 4-2 and two victory over Struve. You could argue that's his most impressive win of this event, given he's beaten Struve, and then he goes on, he beats Laszlo Jura in straights, Vandesen Schulp in straights, Demonauer in three in the round of 32, and then today, 6-4 and four over Daniil Medvedev. Karatsev was broken once. During the course of the match, it was an opening break for Medvedev that Karatsev quickly got back. Medvedev just gave him too much time. And all week long, Karatsev has just shown the requisite patience required to eventually get the short ball he needs. And just, God, are his ground strokes so beautiful. They're so measured. He gets outside the ball so perfectly. And just his follow through, his technique... I mean, the forehand's a little bit big, but on this surface, when he has a little bit more time to really amp up his racket speed on the forehand, you can understand why the ball whips through these clay courts with such significant action on them. He's a pleasure to watch on this surface, and he just had Medvedev on a string. And, like, credit to Medvedev, who scraps, who claws, who I just think his physicality on this surface is going to get him to a quarterfinals of a French Open or at least the second week pretty routinely, because I think you have to have either... No, not either. You have to have weapons like this, and you have to have the physicality to sustain that weaponry for three out of five sets, not just two out of three at a slam. And look, I know Karatsev would be up two sets to love in this situation, but Medvedev wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, he was fighting himself, as he so frequently does in matches where he struggles, but... He's always in the fight making those additional balls and just the depth he's generating. I think he is doing a better job of sliding into his shots. I think he is doing a better job of moving his forehand through the court, exploiting the angles he can use to generate easy lanes of attack on this surface. But he didn't have the weaponry to hang with Karatsev. Karatsev was the one dictating from the start. He was really impressive. His kick serve out wide, so so ridiculous. I mean, Karatsev beat Djokovic on clay like two years ago. Let's not forget that. Like This is a guy who had a lot of challenger success on the clay as well in building up his ranking at the end of 2020 and the start of 2021. 
It's surprising given the fact that he started the week ranked outside the top 120. It's surprising given how much he struggled over the last 52 weeks. But guess what? 29-year-old Aslan Karatsev, back up to number 90 in the world rankings. Huge result for him. Going to get you into the French Open main draw. And again, in a week where he's beaten Demonauer, Medvedev, Vandesinskulp, Laszlo Jura, and a guy who has been one of the 15 best players on clay here in 2023 in Jan Leonard Struve. That result is undeniable given the fact that Struve is into another quarterfinal here on clay this week in Madrid. And I mean, God, for Jan Leonard Struve, who's now up to number 41 in the live rankings, he was outside the top 100 a month ago, six weeks ago. Struve, 33 years old, back up to number 41. We're not talking – I mean, we are giving Jan Leonard Struve a lot of play, praise in tennis-speaking circles. But, again, this is the sort of story that, like, just gets swept under the rug. What a run for Jan Leonard Struve, who, again, gets a pretty comfortable win today. Straight uh, – excuse me, three sets. Okay, not pretty comfortable. Three sets over Pedro Cashin, 7-6-6-7-6-3. But, you know, you look for Struve, who was broken twice – Throughout the course of the match, eight aces won 86% of his first serve points. Struve's been remarkable. He's up to number 41 in the live rankings. That's ridiculous. And you look for Jan Leonard Struve. Again, what he's done throughout the course of this clay court season, qualifies in Monte Carlo, quarterfinals there, qualifies here in Madrid as a lucky loser. Now quarterfinals here. There have been two Masters events on the clay this season. He's made the quarterfinals of both. Who can you say that about? Rublev didn't do that. I got to go look at the Monte Carlo quarterfinals draw. Let's go look at it now. Monte Carlo, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I what? Because I don't think, I'll, I, I don't think, I know Alcaraz didn't play uh, Monte Carlo in 2023. So you look at the Monte Carlo quarterfinals. Who are the players who have made multiple quarterfinals uh, this year? Musetti, no. Sinner, no. Medvedev, no. Runa, no. Rublev, no. Struf, yes. Fritz, no. Tsitsipas, yes. So Struf and Tsitsipas. That's your answer. Struf and Tsitsipas, the only two guys to make the quarterfinals uh, of our two 1,000-level events. If he does it in Rome, again, I'm not saying we got to put that run in the Hall of Fame, but when we do our year-end awards, we there should be an award for what Jan Leonard Struf has done over the course of these six weeks because... You know, he did what Aslan Karatsev did outside the top 100 to inside the top 50, but in an even shorter time span. Like, what a ridiculous run uh, for the 33-year-old German. So impressive. Shout out Jan Leonard Struve. Again, three-set win over Kachin today. He's now going to face Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas, a straight-set winner over Zapata Morales. We got into this conversation with David Kane yesterday, so I'm not going to repeat myself here today, but... It's really not that hard to make the case that Stefano Tsitsipas is one of the five best players in the world on clay, and he continues to look the part, at least so far, throughout the course of this clay court season. I mean, what, he's lost to Fritz, he lost to Alcaraz, and now he's into the quarterfinals here in Madrid. That's your bottom half of the draw. To quickly go through the top half, I mean, shout out to Borna Chorich. God, did he need this run. It was a really slow start. To Chorch's 2023 season. You look for him overall coming into the event. He was 7-8 and eight on the year. Now he gets wins over Gaston, Hercons, Davidovich, Fokina. Into his third quarter final 
of the season, but first since Dubai at the end of February and, you know, coming into Madrid, he lost five consecutive matches. And yes, one of them was to Medvedev, but the other four were Molchan, Eubanks, Nicolas Iari, and Laszlo Jura. Again, context being key, what Eubanks did in Miami, so impressive. Nicolas Iari on clay, whatever. Laszlo Jura on clay, three sets, whatever. But five straight losses for the Cincinnati champion, particularly given how many points he'll have to defend coming up later this summer. And right now is really the free period on his time span to build up his ranking, try to make a top 10 push. This is his first significant result of the season. Again, needed this run. He gets it. Now he has a really good shot to make the semifinals as he's going to take on another lucky loser. When's the last time we had two lucky losers in the quarterfinals of a 1,000-level event? Whoever listens to this podcast and tweets that at me first, I promise you're going to get a retweet from me. Uh, that's a really impressive one for Altmaier, who has a very fun one-handed backhand, takes his rips, gets a good win over Munar. But again, it's a really winnable match and a really big opportunity for Borna Chorich, who right now sitting at 17 in the rankings. Win gets him up to 16. I mean, yeah, like, why can't he make a top 10 push? Right now, between Borna Chorich and number 10, Felix Ogier Aliasim, about 1,200 points separating them. But again, Chorich really doesn't have much to defend till Cincinnati. So there's definitely 1,200 points available for him to be grabbed. It's an interesting little subplot, I suppose, to monitor what does Borna Chorich do with the rest of this free time period on his ranking resume before, again, he's got those 1,000 points to defend in Cincinnati. Of course, your most interesting quarterfinal by far is in the top quarter of the draw. Two guys who are unequivocally top 10 players this year. And look, I'm just going to do the Alcaraz thing quickly. I know that's probably where I should be leading the podcast. Casual tennis fans, that's the most important story. Carlos Alcaraz looking like the best player in the world. I'm going to say that again. And I know we did this debate with Gil Gross last week, and that's not a revelation nor meant to be a slight to Novak Djokovic. It's not that Novak Djokovic isn't world number one good. It's that Carlos Alcaraz is also world number one good. It's that Carlos Alcaraz's best can be argued to be as good as anyone else's now. And that's why we need to see Alcaraz Djokovic more than anything else, and particularly a Djokovic at his best, because we all saw in Australia, Djokovic at his best was the best player in the world, and we didn't have Alcaraz there in January. And yes, I know the Nadal injury is hovering over all of this as well, but we've seen Novak Djokovic be the best player in the world this year. We've also seen Carlos Alcaraz be the best player in the world this year. And we just need to see those two players play head-to-head. It's a simple fact. Alcaraz dominated Alex Zverev today, one and two. Alcaraz, the third best win percentage on clay courts of all active players on tour. He trails just Djokovic and obviously number one Nadal. And it looks the part. I mean, Zverev was not, it's just not moving well enough yet to deal with Carlos Alcaraz. And every time Zverev hung a forehand or hung a second serve, Alcaraz laced a forehand by Zverev or took control of the point with that forehand. It was a joke. Alcaraz was exceptional. Looked the part of world number one. And look, now he's going to face a guy in Karen Hatchinov who right now in the points race, Eighth overall, Hatchinov. And, you know, he would make the ATP Tour Finals. Hatchinov currently sitting at 11 in the live rankings as well. He's 19-8 and eight overall on the year. Semifinals, right, in the sunshine swing for Hatchinov in Miami. He reaches round of 16, loses a tight match to the Monte Carlo champion in Andre Rublev. And now he beats Rublev in the rematch, 6-4 and four here in Madrid. And, 
Look, Hatchinoff played way more aggressively here in Madrid than he did in Monte Carlo, was much more adamant about getting forward to the net and, you know, wasn't broken on the day against Rublev. And I thought he did a much better job of, again, whether it was taking his backhand down the line and not being afraid to challenge the Rublev forehand on the run. I thought he hit his forehand very consistently. The biggest thing, there was not a mental lapse from start to finish in this match. There was not a single wasted pointer. That's not true. I'm sure there was a wasted return at like a 40-15. I'm forgetting about where Hatchinoff swung big and maybe shouldn't have. But everything had purpose. Everything had drive for Karen Hatchinoff. And it was the sort of purpose that comes when you just have confidence in every facet of your game. And how could Hatchinoff not have confidence given the level we've seen from him now for a month consecutively, and not a month consecutively, seven months consecutively. Karen Hatchinov, 26 years old, turns 27 at the end of this month. He's in the prime of his career. You see it very much manifesting itself in the results we see uh, from the Russian throughout the course of this season. So, you know, again, he has the physicality. He has the size. Honestly, he has the backhand to at least make that Alcaraz match interesting. He has the weapons to assert himself on his front foot. I've said it already. You look at the top 25 clubs, Karen Hatchinov, one of four players right now to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage this season. Mathematically, eye test, physicality, he has some weapons, some things he can do to make Alcaraz uncomfortable. Of course, the heaviness of the Alcaraz forehand to that Hatchinoff big forehand backswing, even on a slowed down surface of clay, even at altitude, though, that's an issue. But I'm interested. And if Hatchinoff keeps that match to three sets, he has to move up your dark horse list of players who can do serious damage at the French because, again, Karen Hatchinoff is a lock to hold seed. He holds seed at just about every slam that he plays, countless third, fourth rounds under his belt. He's also made semifinals at back-to-back majors. You can't sell stock on Karen. Like, again, it's staring right in front of us. He is what everyone wants Taylor Fritz to be. And uh, this win against Rublev, I suppose, is a reminder of that, of course, for what it's worth. Not a shock at all. Carlos Alcaraz, 47.1% favored right now, according to Tennis Abstract, to win the event. Tsitsipas, 34.9%. I don't know how that number is not higher, just given the draw he has remaining. But, yeah, Alcaraz, Tsitsipas, collision course. I made this case yesterday. If you're Tsitsipas, you love that fact. Because after the beatdown that happened in Barcelona, you need to try – the only way you're going to figure out how to beat Carlos Alcaraz is to get another look at him. And the only time you're going to get another look at him is potentially in the finals here in Madrid. And I think that's the match tennis fans should be rooting for because I think that would be a significant data point for all of us heading into the French Open. As for the women's side of things in Madrid, I'm going to go through this a little bit quicker here because, again, only two matches on the day. Look, it was a brilliant run for Maya Sharif, and I mentioned this yesterday. Sharif with her run up to a new career high, number 41, first Egyptian woman into the quarterfinals of a 1,000-level event. She throws drop shots, that Western grip, the angle she's able to find. She's going to moonball you and feel no shame in doing so. And, you know, again, she just had Sabalenka disrupted. Early in, in the earliest stages of that match. But, you know, from 6-2 and a break 2-1 down, Sabalenka goes on to win 10 of the next 11 games. And before you know it, she's up 4-0 in the third. And she closes the match out 2-6, 6-2, Sharif just didn't have a consistent weapon to throw Sabalenka off. And while the double faults did pile up at times, particularly early in the match for Sabalenka, once she found her rhythm... Yes, Sharif could throw in some moon balls to extend points, but she couldn't do anything to finish points. And again, once Sabalenka hit through the nonsense, 
she was through in straight sets. And look, for Sabalenka, it's been a pretty straightforward draw. No seeds yet. She's beaten Kirstea, Osorio, Andriva, Sharif. Dropped just one set to get to another semifinal here this year. You look for Arena Sabalenka now, 50-16 and 16 in her last 52, 27-4. and four. She's won 87% of her 30-plus matches to start this season. I said yesterday, Iga and Sabalenka are the best players in the world on this surface. The eyes just... They scream it. Uh, there's not a doubt in my mind right now that those are your two best players on clay. I think there's a little bit of a delta between Iga and Sabalenka as well, but I think the delta between Sabalenka and the rest of the field is bigger than the delta between Iga and Sabalenka, and that's why I think it's worth framing as a top two. And Sabalenka gets through Sharif, and she's through another to another semifinal where now she's got a significant test in a Maria Sakari who grinds her way to a three-set victory over Rina Camilla Begu. I loved Begu's game plan. She was just shameless in throwing up, again, high and heavy balls and just down-the-line neutrality and just forcing Sakari to have to force the issue but man, credit to Maria Sakari. She's just so confident in her first serve, first inside-out forehand combination. She went 79% of her first serve points today. She generated 21 break points for herself. Now, credit to Begu, I suppose, who fought off 13 of those 21, but was still broken eight times on the day. Sakari ultimately the 6-7, 6-4, 6-2 win. Again, I just thought... Sakari, this is what I always say, is the underlying physicality. I wish Sakari would would rely on it more because when she, as she did in the first set, was willing to play Begu's game, was willing to grind with Begu, it actually ground Begu down. It was just a little bit harder for Begu to dig those balls out of the corner and to get the requisite depth that she was getting early in the match because given the physicality of Sakari, she's just able to sustain her aggression from start to finish in the match. And ultimately that aggression broke down the game of Begu. And I saw a really great stat from Opta Ace today uh, about the continued success of Maria Sakari. You know, she has the second most semifinals, I believe, of any WTA player since 2021. You look at that list of players, and again, a credit to Opta Ace, which offer, in my opinion, the best stats in tennis. And it's just at a, uh, it's at O-P-T-A-A-C-E on Twitter, at Opdays. Maria Sakari is the second player with 20-plus WTA semifinals reached in the last three seasons, meaning since the start of 2021, after Iga Swiatek. Uh That's remarkably impressive. Like, And it, it speaks to the fact that Sakari has made multiple year-end finals, that she's been really good for a really long time. And I'm going to do some research either this month or in June when we have a little bit more time, but I've been making a list of stats I want to look up, and I just want to know how many players qualified for WTA Tour Finals in three consecutive seasons. Because I think if you do it in three, I think if you have a three-year run when you're a top 10 player, that's pretty significant. Like, again, if you have a a five—anything more than five and you're in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. If you're a top 10 player, top eight player for five consecutive seasons— you did something at the Slams. You did something at the 1000s. It's not a guaranteed Hall of Fame, but now you're at least in the conversation. But three straight years at the WTA Finals would be the Hall of really freaking good. And I just think Maria Sakari is not a Hall of Famer yet, but she is in the Hall of really freaking good. And yes, I know only the one title. And yes, I know a lot of people are going to hold that against her. But man, like 
Maria Sakri is not going to need a second job. And I, you know, that is my framework as always for success is that she's going to have to be a pro athlete in her life and then everything else is gravy. Um, she's been really good for a really long time and makes a lot of big semifinals in her career. And I know, again, struggles in the big matches. And for some, that's the deal breaker. Not for us here at the mini break. We appreciate the continued excellence, dare I say, of Maria Sakari. Again, it's not Hall of Fame quality, but yeah, you look for Maria Sakari, just the results for Sakari over the course of her past three seasons. Because again, I want to be specific here. I believe no tour finals in 2020. 2021, she makes Guadalajara. 2022, she makes Fort Worth. 2023, she makes it this year. That would be three straight seasons. I mean, come on now. Three straight years of top eight. And for right now, you look, Maria Sakari with her victory. She's up to number nine. She's 48 points behind Coco Goff, and it's still very, very early. I mean, for what it's worth, there's a 1,000 points separating Sakari at ninth and Pagula at third. I feel pretty confident saying Sabalenka, Rabakina, and Sviantec are going to occupy three of those spots. I also feel pretty confident saying Pagula, who just quietly into another quarterfinal here at Madrid, she's going to be the fourth. But man, those race for the other four spots, it's going to be fascinating because Benchich is off to a hot start. She's in fifth right now. Krejcikova, six. Kvitova with that Miami title, seven. Goff makes sense. Eight. Sakari, nine. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I think the, the first four sound right. I think Krejcikova's probably been, although a little streaky of late, the fifth best. There's certainly number uh, belongs in that fifth spot. But those last three... They're up for grabs, and with so many, I, I just I think the race for the WTA Tour Finals is really really fun because what's the difference right now between eighth place Coco Goff and sixteenth place Donna Vekic, right? I mean, it's obviously going to be really small point margins right now, but I'm talking about from the level we've seen on court. I think there are a lot of really good players hovering in that six to. 36 range in the WTA rankings. And so, again, Sakari continuing to assert her spot up those rankings. Semi-finalist at Indian Wells, now a semi-finalist here in Madrid. Was on a three-match skid coming into Madrid. Snaps that, obviously. And let's be clear, those last three losses, Sabalenka, Andrescu, and Pliskova, no shame in any of those. Uh, but certainly good for her to get four wins here under her belt and now gets the big test against Sabalenka once again in the semifinals for what it's worth because I'm sure some of you are curious that career head-to-head between Sabalenka and Sakari. 5-3 advantage to Sabalenka, though, for what it's worth. Sakari has won two out of the last three. That's where things stand right now on the women's side in Madrid. Of course, for what it's worth, Iga Sviantec still the favorite, 54.9%, despite the fact that Sakari Sabalenka are each around ahead of her. Of course, tomorrow, Sviantec going to take Petra Martic. Sviantec an 88.7% favorite, 1-0 in the career head-to-head. First career head-to-head for two players who you imagine would have played once before. I mean, God, have they hovered in a lot of quarterfinals together. Jessica Pagula taking on Veronica Kudermatova. Pagula, a 63.5% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. That will be a fun one, of course, for all of us to monitor tomorrow alongside of some of the men's quarterfinal action. Of course, we will be back tomorrow to break down all of that and so much more. Of course, a shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all 
of our content here at Cracked Rackets possible. Again, not just coverage of Madrid, Rome, and the French Open over the course of the next month. We'll have so much of the NCAA tournament available for all of you. Coverage of so much of it available over on our Great Shot podcast and Cracked Interviews podcast feeds, of course. A shout-out, as always, to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their support of this podcast. Remember, you can find all of the latest equipment at the greatest prices by going to tennis-point.com today. Make sure you use our promo code CR15 to let them know that we sent you there with all of that said. For our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.